And let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll find it on page 1177 of your pew Bible, if you're using that. 1177, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be studying this morning. If you've been with us over the past few months, you may remember the setting or the background for this pastoral letter. Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. He's been sent to the great city of Ephesus to confront wayward elders in that church, elders who were using their power to corrupt the church in various ways. Paul had foreseen by the Spirit this problem, and he had even met with the elders in Ephesus to warn them that false teaching would arise in their congregation. But despite those warnings, the situation in Ephesus has deteriorated. So Timothy is dispatched to Ephesus to assist the remaining faithful elders. Timothy is to silence the false teaching. That is the immediate crisis for sure, but that is not his only role. As we'll see throughout this letter and the next, Timothy is to take up the role of pastor in the congregation. He is to teach, pray, love, and lead thoroughly. Paul will urge him later on in this letter to devote himself to reading and teaching. He is, quote, to practice these things, immerse himself in them, end quote. As we, following Timothy, soak ourselves in God's word in these letters, we may discover that God views the role of pastor quite differently than we do. Is it possible that we've looked for the wrong things in those we choose as our elders and pastors? Even more broadly, the picture Paul gives here of the church will challenge us. If we listen carefully and submissively, I believe these letters will undercut much of what we see today in the larger evangelical church in America. Many of our preferences and blind spots will be exposed. So as we continue to study together today, let me begin by urging you as your brother in Christ to put yourself under the instruction of God's word. Let the word of God dwell in you richly and be reformed according to its teaching. As we do that together, I'm confident we will see God's plan for the church in new and extremely challenging ways. Being conformed to God's word is never easy. It is never natural, but it is altogether lovely and life-giving. Today, we'll consider just one verse, verse 17. And yet this one verse has the power to alter our view of church and especially of worship. Unlike so much of our Western worship, the theme here is not what God has done for me, but rather who God is in his glory. Now, please do not get me wrong here. Please don't misunderstand. Paul has just spent the last few verses talking about what Christ did for him, a sinner. So what, Paul has, what God has done for us as sinners is an excellent, it's a vital theme of our worship and our church. What a friend we have 
in Jesus. However, it is striking, I think telling, that the crescendo, the final point of Paul's testimony of what God has done for him is not about Paul or even about what God has done for Paul, but rather who God is in his glory. That is, Paul revels not just in what God did for us, but in who God is in his being. He is immortal, invisible, the only true God, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious. And if we're honest, if we're honest, this is just where the American church, especially, I think, struggles. We're very strong on what Jesus did for us on the cross, and praise the Lord for that strength. But we tend to be very weak on just who God is in his glory. With that introduction, let me invite you to stand as we hear this rich word of praise. For context, I'll begin reading in verse 15 through to verse 17. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, today we look up from our lives and we dare to consider the one who is above our every thought, whose glory fills the universe, whose love has no boundaries, whose wisdom is infinite and timeless. And we are not capable of taking you in not even capable of treading on the verge, on the front porch of all that you are. But yet through your spirit, we can know something, enough that we can offer up our doxology. So work in us this morning. Reveal something of yourself to us and elicit from us and inspire in us your praise. For you are worthy and because we ask it in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're a member here, you are probably already familiar with the word doxology. If you're not familiar with that word this morning, you may have at least noted that we sang a doxology this morning right after the offering. We sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow and so forth. Now, that might have sounded rather old-fashioned to you. You may have even had a bit of a negative reaction to standing and singing something that may sound a bit formulaic. Maybe some of our young people, our kids, are wondering, why are we doing this every week? Well, it's not because we're stuck in the past, nor are we blindly committed to tradition without feeling. Rather, we do this because the Bible does it. 
The Bible contains dozens of doxologies. Paul alone provides us with over a dozen of them. But there are far more throughout the other books of the Bible. In fact, the book of Revelation has numerous doxologies, the most, in part because it's a picture of heaven and the glorious end of all things when all things resolve in doxology. Our current world is doxological, and our history is moving towards even more doxologies. Okay, but what are they? What are these doxologies? What does this word mean? Doxa means glory, and logos means words. So glory words or glory sayings. Dr. George Knight, longtime Greek uh, New Testament expert and theologian, notes that biblical doxologies follow a pattern, not just Paul's, but the others we have in the New Testament follow a pattern. Verse 17 follows a pattern. God is always addressed as glorious. The words are always there for ages or eternal or eternality. It's always included in some way. And then an amen is put at the end. And they all look like that, though they have little variations and differences. Many times, and this is true in verse 17, there's a kind of rhythm to the phrasing. You didn't hear it because I read it to you in English. I won't read it to you in Greek because my pronunciation of New Testament Greek is atrocious. But if I did, you would actually hear in Greek that there is a rhythm to what's being said in this doxology. It's a confessional statement. Maybe the best way to put it is this. It's a rhythmic confessional statement born out of a deep excitement and joy in who God is. Paul has set us an example by offering these words of praise, sometimes at the beginning of his letters, sometimes at the end, sometimes at the middle, sometimes all three. In doing so, he reminds us that all of life is to be doxological. As he reminded the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Tradition for tradition's sake is unhelpful. But using doxologies as we do is thoroughly biblical. Some things are worth saying every week, even every day. Now that I have hopefully uh, sold you a little bit on doxologies, let's focus down on this particular one. And I think it's fair to say that it is more than a little striking. Notice how it begins. The whole verse is to the king. Then what follows, and I know you can't see this easily in English, but it's there. What follows to the king are three Greek words, all beginning with the letter A, giving it a rhythmic sound. God is the king, and three words, eternal, immortal, and invisible. To this, he adds the conclusion, the only God to whom all glory and honor is due and required. Today, we still need these words, for we still live, remarkably, in a pagan culture. God is not us, some part of our consciousness, nor is he a thing, some blind force or powerful animal. The old paganism of Paul's day and the new paganism of Star Wars and Oprah are equally wrong. God is not one of us. He is not a created thing. 
Rather, he has revealed himself as the one true God, personal, perfect, and beyond our imagination. Today, let's consider briefly his attributes as Paul confessed them. And with Paul, let's speak of these attributes with real praise and warm joy. First, Paul writes that this king is, in your ESV, king of the ages. The first of the three Greek words is the word for eternal or ages. So in your Bible, you have to the king of the ages. Godly men and women have, through the ages, spoken of God's infinity, his infinity. Our catechism asks, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit infinite and eternal. As my Sunday school class, all you uh, teenagers and a few a little older than teenagers can tell us, God is infinite in many ways, isn't he? You know this, some of you, hopefully. His wisdom is infinite, for example. All his attributes are infinite. Here, Paul is speaking of God's infinity in regard to time. He is eternal. He is the king of the past. He is the king of the present. He is the king of the future. He's king of all the ages. Unlike our nation and its leaders, God reigns from age to age. He reigned before the world was made. Ephesians 1 tells us that before the world was made, he placed us as believers in his son. He reigned over Egypt during the Exodus. Pharaoh could not hold his people. He reigned over Babylon. They also had to let his people go at the appointed time. He reigned over the Romans and the Jews, even in Jesus' crucifixion, especially in Jesus' crucifixion, they were fulfilling the plan of the king of the ages. And of course, he is the king of all the future as well. Now, at the time Paul wrote this, maybe 70, 80 AD, no one, understand this, no one could imagine a world where Rome was not the dominant cultural and political force in the world. But what do we know? We know that Rome's dominance quickly faded. However, God's reign is eternal. Martin Luther put it so memorably when he wrote, He is the king of the ages. With one wink of his eye, he beholds the eyes and crowns of all kings in contempt. They are but kings of an hour. We should echo this sentiment and remember that our proud civilization is still just in its infancy. A few years ago, I had the joy of visiting my sister in Greece, where she and her husband are missionaries, missionaries that we support. While there, I was struck by the number of ancient ruins that simply lie around the countryside, largely unguarded and even unnoticed. For the Greeks, for the Greeks, a pillar that's just 2,000 years old is not particularly unique or rare or important. In contrast, in the United States, we guard our oldest cultural artifacts, which date only 250 years. In the big scheme of things, we are an infant civilization in its infancy. Our dominance is only recent, and it is already declining and fading. What's true of our nation is also true of us individually, though, isn't it? Our time here is quick. 
Even the greatest men and women age before our eyes. Their powers fail. Their petty kingdoms collapse. They are forgotten. Throughout scripture, we are urged to see God in this way and to delight in this truth. Just think how wonderful it is today to belong to an eternal king and kingdom. His kingdom is evergreen, always budding, full of life from generation to generation. Won't you today then let go of your little, petty, failing kingdom and come into a kingdom of never diminishing joy? Dr. Boyce once wrote these words. He said, if he were, that is God, a mere human, and if we did not like either him or what he was doing, we might ignore him, knowing that he might always change his mind, move away from us, or die. But God does not change his mind. He does not move away. He will not die. Consequently, we cannot escape him. Even if we ignore him now, we must reckon with him in the life to come. If we reject him now, we must eventually face the one we have rejected and experience his eternal rejection of us because he is the king of the ages. The second Greek word in verse 17 that Paul adds then to of the ages or the eternal king is the word you have translated immortal. So verse 17 reads to the king of the ages or eternal and then Paul adds immortal. Now in English, that might sound like just repetition. We've already said that God's eternal. Doesn't immortal just mean the same thing? Actually, it doesn't. Here, the word doesn't mean simply that God is eternal or goes on and on and on. Rather, it means that he is changeless, changeless and without decay. If you want to sound really smart at your next Bible study group, Mention to the people in your group that God is immutable. Immutable is the idea here. It means without change. God is not just sort of lasting through the ages, slogging along in weariness. Rather, he is every day undiminished, uncorrupted, and unchanged. His glory is just as bright today as it was yesterday. The fact that our culture or another culture doesn't like him or doesn't love him doesn't diminish his glory in any way. His glory is just as bright today as it was on the day he created all things. This wonderful truth lays behind the greatest name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Yahweh means, as you probably know, I am what I am or I am that I am. Because God has life in himself, He's not subject to decay. This is hard for us to grasp. Our world is always heading towards decay. More personally, our bodies are a constant 24-7 reminder that decay and change reign. Again, this should cause us to praise and worship God. Romans 1.23 warns us of what will happen to us if we do not glorify God for his immortality. Paul writes that mankind disastrously exchanged the glory of the immortal, same word, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal, corruptible man and birds and animals and creeping things. Listen, it is a sick and twisted thing 
when we take our eternal soul, that part of us that most resembles God, his greatest gift to us, when we take that part of ourselves and we give it to mortal things, dying things, decaying things. So today, everything for us is change. We struggle on. Our bodies are running down and everything around us follows thermodynamics. But God is so generous, so gracious. Do you realize that God has offered you immortality as well? He offers you today, as I'm preaching, a crown that will not fade away, an inheritance that is immutable and cannot decay Paul uses this same Greek word here in 1 Corinthians when he writes, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable or immortal, and we shall be changed. And again, he uses the word in 1 Corinthians 9 as he writes, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable, a decaying wreath, but we, an immortal one. As I've said before, I know to you many times, I say again, and open your hearts, God is not who you think he is. He is not some frustrated, disillusioned old man up in heaven with a beard. No, he is a being who already has everything. He has no need of us. Within the Trinity is perfect joy and love, eternal, unchanging, and flawless. But he is overflowing with generosity because he has taken the attribute in himself that we want the most, his immortality, the attribute we most desperately need. And what has he done? Has he hoarded it up to himself? No, wonders of wonders. God has given us what is truly his. He gives the best things he has to us. Instead of a serpent or a stone, he crowns us, as we sang just a few moments ago. He crowns us with glory and honor. We will never be unchangeable the way God is. This is true. We are subject to decay and change at this time. But there is a time coming when we will receive an, immut an immutable joy, a changeless beauty, an incor incorruptible crown of glory. So our God is the king of the ages. He reigns over all the events of space and time. He works in time, but he's not bound and limited to it. He's not threatened by our current civilization, and he's not the least bit worried about the so-called progress He's seen it all before. As Luther noted, these leaders are the kings of a mere hour. He is the king of the ages. Second, he is immortal, immune to decay. There is within him no shadow of turning, no variation. He is immutable, unchangeable in all his perfections. He's not becoming something as we are. Rather, God is Yahweh, I am he is what he will always be, and only because he is unchangeable can we trust his promises and be assured of our future. Like Israel of old, we do not perish because our Lord does not change. Now, lastly, thirdly, one more Greek word. To the king of the ages, immortal 
and invisible. In the Greek language, which is the language the New Testament was written in, the letter A often stands before a word to negate it, sort of like we use the letter I, right? We say immoral or immortal, and I means not this. And that's how A works in Greek. So once again, we have a Greek word with the letter A, and this word means not able to be seen, or as you have there, invisible. Now, Paul's point here is not that God is completely hidden, but rather that we cannot take him in. We cannot comprehend him. The scriptures here, I think, teach a crucial balance, which we must embrace every moment as we think about God and live as his people, and I would say especially as we teach our kids. On the one hand, God is invisible, as Paul states here. Our children may know that simple catechism answer, no, I cannot see God, but he can always see me. We cannot take God in. We can't comprehend him. That is Paul's meaning. However, with the other hand, we must insist, remind our kids and ourselves in the strongest possible way that God can be known, not fully, not completely, but really and truly. God has revealed himself in creation. He has revealed himself in his word and especially in the life, death, and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, for example, Paul tells us that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, clearly seen in the creation. You can look at the universe, you can use basic human logic and arrive at the conclusion that the maker is immensely powerful, creative, and loving. Along with creation, the Bible also declares him. We have the names of God, for example, in our Bible. This is one of the best ways to study God's character is do a study of his names. But we also have other things. We have miracles, words of prophecy. We have Moses' shining face. We have the tent of meeting that you heard about this morning that Elder Boyajan read about. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple. So God is not hiding from us like that wizard in the Wizard of Oz. He's not the man behind the curtain who doesn't want to be seen. He does give us signs, symbols, and words. But finally, in the greatest moment of self-revelation, God the Father gave us his Son. And in those words you heard this morning from John 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God, though, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Paul, in the book of Colossians, brings us face to face with a mystery. Listen to the way Paul wrote this, because he wrote it to be somewhat ironic or paradoxical. He writes of the Lord Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the image of the one who can't be imaged, the firstborn of all creation. In the Old Testament, then, God was revealing himself in symbols and in visions. You had the burning bush, the blood on the doors. All of these were lovely and deeply helpful. But now in Christ, a far greater revelation has come. Paul was not afraid in Colossians or in Philippians to describe Jesus as the exact imprint of the invisible God. 
However, what Paul is saying here is that there will never be a time when we will comprehend God, where we will take him in, where we will see all that there is to see. I think this is what C.S. Lewis was after when in his book, The Great Divorce, he described God poetically, of course, as a gigantic mountain range, and that all believers in heaven are always going further up and further in. Lewis, Lewis didn't mean this literally. He knew God is not a mountain. Rather, he meant that eternity will not be long enough to think all God's thoughts. Part of the joy of knowing God is knowing that your discovery will never come to an end. It's that joy you have when you feel small, when you drive into a city like New York or Philadelphia, and there's something about that. There's a little joy in being surrounded by so much. Or you stand and you look at the Grand Canyon or at a forest. There is a pleasantness, a joy in finally being small. And that is the joy we will have for all eternity as we face and discover every day a greater and greater God than we can take in. Deep down, I know that all of us wish that we could see God in some way, that we could comprehend him. Maybe you're here this morning and you wish that there was some verifiable kind of evidence I could give you of God. Maybe someone you're working with or witnessing to wants this. They, they may even say to you, look, if I, if I could get God under my microscope for one minute, I would believe. It would be much easier at least. But consider, think about this. What kind of being would God be if you could put him under your gaze? If you or me, we could take him in. We think that's what we want. A God who can be seen, taken in, comprehended. But the minute we finished seeing him, the minute we finished taking him in, I think we'd be disillusioned and disappointed. Pastor Tim Keller writes about C.S. Lewis and how he dealt with this struggle in his own day many years ago in the 1950s. Here's how Keller describes one moment from Lewis's life. When a Russian cosmonaut, this was an astronaut, returned from space, and remember these were the days of communism, Russia was very secular, this cosmonaut returned from space, he reported to the world that he had not found God. C.S. Lewis responded that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. If there is a God, he wouldn't be another object in the universe that you could put a label on and put in a lab and analyze with empirical methods. He would relate to us the way a playwright relates to the characters in his play. We, the characters, might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. Therefore, in no case could we, quote-unquote, prove God's existence as if he were an object wholly within our universe, like oxygen or hydrogen or an island in the Pacific. Lewis gives us another metaphor for knowing the truth about God when he writes that he believes in God, quote, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, because by it I see everything else. Now imagine trying to look directly at the sun in order to learn about it. You can't do it. It'll burn out your retinas. 
ruining your capacity to take it in. A far better way to learn about the existence, power, and quality of the sun is to look at the world it shows you, to recognize how it sustains everything you see and enables you to see it. As Christians, we too should be careful not to fall into these traps of wanting a comprehensible God, a God under our thumb, under our microscope. Be very careful, brothers and sisters, of the WWJD trap. The truth is, it is a dangerous thing to believe that you know or always know what Jesus would do or think. Yes, there are some things we clearly know. Jesus would not murder. Jesus would not steal. Jesus would not commit adultery. But as we consider more complex issues in our lives and in our church, we must be very careful to say, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? All of eternity will not be long enough to know all that is in our great God. So step back now with me for a moment. We've seen together the rich theology that pours out of Paul as he spontaneously worships our great triune God. We've listened in as he reminds us that our God reigns eternally, is unchanged by time and trouble, and remains above and beyond our human weakness. John Calvin once wrote that we would break our necks if we tried to look up to God and fully understand him. He is beyond description. But our God is not beyond doxology. True, we can't fully know him, but we know enough, enough to praise him, enough to glorify and enjoy him forever. And because we can never take him in fully, that joy and that glory will go on forever and ever. And that is our chief end, our purpose why we're here. I was struck during the week of VBS to hear our children uh, sing words that were so simple, and they sang them so simply as only children can, and yet so theologically profound. Our children sang again and again, and many of you heard it, we were made to praise the Lord. We were always meant, brothers and sisters, we were always meant from the very beginning to be doxological beings. We are worshipers to our core. We must worship either ourselves or God, either the world or Christ. But whatever choice we make, we must worship. We must give doxology. If things like verse 17 don't come out of you, if things like verse 17 never come out of you, then other things will. Everyone has a doxology. Maybe Frank Sinatra captured the doxology of the modern West best when he did his autobiography in music. His doxology was simple. He sang with defiance, I did it my way. And for more recent generations, my generation and down, it's not Frank Sinatra, it's Lady Gaga as she belts out her doxology, just love yourself and your set. I was born this way. Very different people, but really the same message. Because in the final analysis, you've got to worship. 
Either you will worship something within the creation or you will worship the one who made it all. Whether it's the demigods of Greek myth or the modern worship of self, it's all the same in the end. It's all just idolatry. It's all just self-worship. And that doxology, it will never last. And deep down, we all know it. That anthem will never satisfy because we will never be eternal, immortal, invisible. Our future, if we're honest, is the nursing home, the slow sucking of medical equipment, and the final humiliations of death. The king of eternity blinks his eyes, and a generation is gone. Kings for an hour. That's all we are. Kings for an hour. He reigns and he laughs. But to those who turn away from the creation to the creator, there is increasingly satisfying doxology forevermore. It can grow louder, better, stronger, deeper with every passing millennium of eternity, forever up and forever in and singing all the way. At the age of 17, one of the most brilliant minds America has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, read this verse, um, this verse, verse 17, and he wrote in his diary these words. He said, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I have ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to God in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed in him. This is why we sing a doxology every Sunday, because all week we've heard the world's doxologies, and now we long to be wrapped up in one who is excellent, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is none like you, none in heaven and earth, for your glory is eternal and your power and love endless. Take us away then from the praise and worship of lesser things that demeans our humanity and lowers our minds and hearts and activate in us that which you made us for, that we might be doxological beings, worshiping you with all our heart, soul, and mind. Be with anyone here this morning, anyone listening to this, be with friends and family we're sharing the gospel with who are trapped in the idolatry of self and of the world. Such dreary work to give yourself again and again to yourself. Such a terrible master and God we make. Have mercy on us and draw us from our natural idolatry to a supernatural praise of you by your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.